Uh, thank you all. It's great to see everyone. Uh, I chose this topic rather than having this topic assigned. Uh, the district reached out to me a few months ago and said, hey, we'd like you to do a breakout session. And thankfully, the district said, we're going to let you choose the topic. And I had just gotten done talking to a group of young pastors on polarization. And I realized I have had this same conversation in a lot of different places. Maybe this is the chance for me to actually put everything down and, and have a presentation on this. And so this is where it's coming out of. I've talked to a lot of people who've just experienced a lot of pain as pastors during COVID. I've had a lot of people tell me it has never been harder to serve as a pastor. And I want to kind of address the pain. Now, there's a lot of pain points from COVID. Uh, from church closures and the emotional, financial, spiritual fallout that happens from that. But the pain I kind of want to address is the pain that comes from the negative responses of church members, a lot of whom who have demanded very different things from pastors, and it's almost as if there's no way I can possibly win. Uh, I have served as a pastor for about 15 years in Los Angeles. I was there pastoring when I moved out here, uh, and I've pastored through crises. Like many of you, I was a pastor on 9-11 and pastored my church through that. I pastored our church uh, through a recession, uh, pastored our church through a massive demographic shift in our community that a lot of our church was not happy about. And the question is, do we stay or do we go? I've pastored our church through the moral failings of other pastoral leaders. So I do understand something about pastoring in a crisis, but I never pastored during COVID. And so I want to be clear that I'm not going to offer any kind of criticism of anyone's choice. Here's what I want to say. If you were a pastor before COVID and you're a pastor now, you deserve applause. <laughs> and that's my only opinion on that, because this is a new, unique thing that no one was ready for. And the fact that you have made it through is tremendous. Uh, but I know some of the pain points that come from this. Uh, one of my favorite stories of being a pastor is, is one week I had a young woman call me in the middle of the night, uh, late at night, uh, Miriam. And Miriam called and she said, Pastor Allen, I, I just got to let you know, I've discovered your secret. Now, thankfully, I was living the kind of life that that didn't bother me. And, and so I, I was like, okay, Miriam, I'm like, like, like what, what secret have you uncovered? I don't know what's going on here. Because it was just kind of a weird conversation. And then finally, she says to me, I realize you're actually Jesus come back to earth. And then starts describing this whole scenario in her head. Miriam was uh, a, a, an adult woman living with her adult brother, because it's LA, so family always live together. And I'm like, hey, Miriam, is your brother there? Get Alberto on the phone. Alberto gets on the phone. Alberto, Miriam's having a break right now. I need you to take her to this hospital. I'm going to meet you there. And sure enough, it was the beginning of a very long journey for her. That same week, I'm checking up on a member of my church who is a meth addict who has been clean and sober for a while, but he skipped a church service, and that's always the alarm bells because he hasn't been missing. And sure enough, he had fallen off the wagon. He lives with his mom. He's an adult. I call. His mom picks up the phone. I'm like, hey, it's Alan. Is, is Walter there? She's like, I'll get him. And here's the thing. This is a family that constantly communicates by yelling and never realize everyone can hear them. So she puts the phone down, and I hear her like, come to the phone! It's Pastor Allen! And he's, 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 you know, high, and he just says to her, I don't want to talk to him! He's the devil! She immediately picks up the phone and says, oh, he's busy right now. Can he give you a call back? 
I'm like, no, no, that would be fine. This all happened in the same week. In one week, I went from the second incarnation of Jesus to the devil. And all I had done was what I was doing for everybody. And it feels like for a lot of people during COVID, that was an experience. All you're trying to do is lead people into the will of God. And someone thinks you're the second coming. And someone else thinks you're the tool of Satan. And so what I want to talk about uh, briefly in this is I'm going to talk about three things. I'm going to talk about the problem, really just what happened. How have we reached such a level of polarization in our community? How is that impacting the church? Then I want to come to the Apostle Paul. I said in the description, what scriptural resources do we have? And my last question was, how would Paul have pastored a 21st century church in America? I want to look at that. And then finally, we want to kind of come to the application. How do we pastor polarized people? And so I want to begin by looking at what happened, and I want to highlight something. First, I'm going to say something about polarization here. I'm defining polarization this way. It's an increasing division of groups into irreconcilable opponents. An increasing division of groups into irreconcilable opponents, opponents leading to deepening spaces between sides. Polarization has become such a fact. Good to see you, Austin. Polarization has become such a fact of American life that it is a major topic now in social science. And just what we always do in science is this, is we categorize everything. So scientists actually have four different categories for polarization. I'm just going to give them to you real quick. There will not be a quiz on this at the end. I just want to highlight the facets of polarization. Number one is effective polarization. And that's the way that the other side makes you feel. So the increasing negativity that you have towards people who you think are opposite you, that's called effective polarization. Then there's ideological polarization, which is simply how divided we are on particular issues. So I feel about this this way, you feel about that that way. We're so far apart on this, that's ideological. Then there's political polarization, and this is simply the influence of our group on our stance. We're going to talk about this in a minute, but today we live in a world where people choose how they feel about moral issues based on the group they belong to, rather than choosing the group they belong to based on how they feel about moral issues. It's the group that tells me how to feel about this. That's called political polarization. And then finally we have what's called perceptual polarization which is now my belief about the beliefs of the other side. And one thing that studies have started to show is that not only are we polarized and disagreeing with each other, not only are we polarized in how we feel about each other, we're polarized in how we think the other feels about us, and routinely we get it wrong. <laughs> you ask one group to fill out a survey on what another group thinks, and that same group to fill a survey on what this group thinks, and more and more, they're getting it wrong about how they actually see the other side when the other side is asked the same question about their own beliefs. That's perceptual polarization. Let me illustrate this with this really great example I saw recently. Uh, a lot of people remember, and they both now passed on, Anton Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Scalia was the conservative giant on the U.S. Supreme Court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the liberal giant on the U.S. Supreme Court. They were also the very best of friends. That picture is not an odd picture. They went out with their families 
constantly because they were actually each other's best friends. So on the one hand, we have this example of these two people who are icons on different sides of polarization who absolutely rather spend time with each other in their evening free time. But here's the weird thing. I want to show you this. When they both were up for nominees as the Supreme Court Justice, here's how the U.S. Senate voted. Anton Scalia, the giant of conservatism, got a unanimous vote from Democrats and Republicans. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the giant of liberalism, got a near unanimous vote from Democrats and Republicans. Not that they agreed with everything this person said or felt, they simply felt they were qualified enough to be on the Supreme Court and they didn't need to vote against the other side just because it was the other side's candidate. Now, let's look at the two others here. Stephen Barr, John Roberts. Here's another liberal, here's another conservative. You see a change in the vote slightly, but guess what? It's still both sides voting for the other. Now compare this to the 21st century and what's happened with the last four Supreme Court justices. And it is almost straight down the line, an ideological vote. And if anyone crosses that line, they're treated as a traitor to their party. Whether we're talking about Mitt Romney or Joe Manchin, it doesn't matter. They're treated as a traitor to their party. That's the effect of polarization. We simply feel like we have to stay within these camps on every issue. Uh, the Pew Foundation, a few years ago, did a survey of polarized people. In fact, every 10 years, the Pew Foundation has actually been doing a massive multi-thousand American survey on how polarized we are. And here is what is so crazy to me. In 2004, 49% of Americans shared an equal number, roughly, of conservative and liberal views. 2014, it was down to 39%. 2004, the numbers of people in this country who were only conservative or only liberal, 10%. This is 2004. 2014, it's now over 20%. What do you think it's going to be in 2024 when they do this again? Not only that, maybe 50. Not only that, when they interview them about how they feel, here's what both sides argued. Both sides, their unfavorable views of the other side, in 10 years went from 15% had extremely unfavorable views to 40% having extremely unfavorable in just 10 years. We've had that kind of jump. Now both sides say they would rather live in neighborhoods surrounded by people who share same political views, and they would rather have all their close friends from the same political side. Other words, both sides don't want to be around the other. They don't want to spend time with the other. And this difference has only happened in the last 10 years. That's a change in our country. Uh, compromise is now defined as each side getting exactly what it wants. When they ask people, what does it look like to compromise? People actually said, it's me getting what I want. 
I once heard a comedian say this. He said, last night my wife and I were having an argument. He said, I wanted the temperature to be at 67. She wanted the temperature to be at 72. We argued and argued and finally we compromised and set the temperature at 72. And he said, and if you don't think that's a compromise, you're not married. That's where we are politically. Last thing I'm going to give you here is a quick survey. In 2018, this is four years later, a massive study was done of Americans on where they fit politically, and they asked them a whole series of questions on immigration, on sexuality, on religion, on social justice, on policing, pretty much everything you could think of. And then they compiled their answers, and here's what they uncovered. All Americans could pretty much be put into seven different groups based on how they answer these questions. Would you like to see these seven groups? The name of the study was Hidden Tribes, and I'm going to make a point about this. The name of the study was called Hidden Tribes. Here's the groups. The first group, and we're going to do this in a spectrum, was the progressive activists. These Americans are younger, highly engaged, secular, cosmopolitan, and angry. And they make up 8% of the U.S. populace. Then you have the traditional liberals. This group is older, retired, open to compromise, rational, and cautious. They make up 11%. Then you have the passive liberals. They are unhappy, insecure, distrustful, and disillusioned. They're 15%. Then you have my favorite group, the politically disengaged. They are young, low-income, distrustful, detached, patriotic, and also conspiratorial. What does that mean is? They're always willing to believe a conspiracy somewhere. Then you have the moderates. They are engaged, civic-minded, middle-of-the-road, pessimistic. And here's another thing that came out from it. They're also almost uniformly Protestant. 15%. Traditional conservatives, religious, middle-class, patriotic, moralistic, 19%. And then finally, you have devoted conservatives. White, retired, highly engaged, uncompromising, patriotic, 6%. Now, here's what I want to show you. Look at this and tell me, who has the majority? Unengaged. Unengaged. They're the largest minority, but who has the majority? Nobody. Nobody. Meaning, in all these tribes, every single person feels like a minority in this country when it comes to their political views. That the majority of people don't agree with me on the way I think things should be. And now let me give you an illustration. I need seven volunteers. Come up here, seven volunteers. I'm gonna have you stand across the stage. This is not a stage, but go with me. Just stand in a line up here. Now, let me see where my left is. I'm about to make a declaration. You are a progressive activist. You're a traditional liberal. You're a passive liberal. You are politically disengaged. You are a moderate. You are a traditional conservative. And you, my friend, are a devoted conservative. Now, here's what I want you to see. Imagine we have all these people in church. Okay, except for you, progressive activists, go sit down. You're secular. You're not going to church. If I invite you to church, and come back here just for a minute. Of all the people in this group, who's the most secular? 
And if everyone disagrees with him, and they're all not secular, what's he likely to think the problem is? Religion. Because he's on this end, everyone is wrong, and they're all religious. By the way, 70-something percent of Americans still claim to be Christian. They're all religious. So go sit down. You're not in church. You're in church. You are a traditional liberal. But now you look at the people around you, and there are a whole lot of conservatives in this church. And it is a little uncomfortable, right? You see a lot of red hats, okay? You might find a different church. You go sit down. Now you're looking around. You're passive. You're already upset. You're depressed. You find someplace else. You go sit down. You're politically disengaged. You don't care. But they keep talking politics over here. You are not interested. You go sit down. Now, you're a moderate, but a moderate is going to look like what to this side? A liberal. You are incredibly distrustful of who's on the other end because, my goodness, how did they even get into this church? You need to go sit down. And now if we have two people left, the traditional conservative and the devoted conservative, who's the liberal in this group? Answer is really no one. But how's it going to look from this end? How's it going to look from this end? You guys can go sit down. Do you see where the problem is? Everyone standing wherever they're standing is thinking everyone on this side is wrong. Everyone on this side is crazy. And if I'm all the way over here, I'm the only purist in the group. And when Christians come to church, church is the place where they want to feel safest, where they want to be most secure. And yet if I look around and I feel like, because how many of you know, it doesn't matter. You might say, well, yeah, the Assemblies of God is traditionally conservative. We have hidden tribes in our church, right? And now you look around and you feel like the minority politically in your own church. Church is the one place you want to feel most safe and you don't feel safe because you don't agree with the people that you're worshiping with. And is it a surprise that people who come to our church lash out when they hear the pastor say something? that they think is representing one of these other tribes. Because they feel insecure. Because they feel unsafe. Because, and I've heard this from more than one person, someone has taken my church from me. Because it no longer represents where I'm at. Now, I'm going to show you one other thing, and then we're going to talk about Scripture. But there's been a lot of talk about how did this happen. How did we actually get here in the 21st century? When did the polarization start? Some people blame the 60s, because if you're going to blame any decade for anything, go with the 60s, right? Some the 70s, some the 80s, some the 90s, some just the 21st century. Here's what I've discovered in my, my research, my sampling of different social scientists. Most of them now agree that there's no longer a single cause to polarization. And one of my favorites actually put together a chart of everything that he thinks is causing polarization. Would you like to see this chart? Be sure to write this down. This is an actual chart in an academic book trying to describe why we are polarized. I'm not going to go through this. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you five buckets that I think include most of the factors that people talk about when they talk about polarization. 
I'm not starting with the bucket that I think is first because all of these buckets are both causes and they're also consequences. Meaning that they all mutually reinforce each other. But I'm going to go through this. I'm going to give you five and then we're going to talk about how this affects the church. The first bucket is simply the bucket of cultural insecurity. We have people who feel insecure within their own culture. Some of this might be because of economic insecurity, because of the recession, because of the growing divide between the wealthy and the poor and the middle class and the disappearing middle class. Some feel insecure because of the rapid cultural change that we're experiencing. Do you realize how quickly our culture has changed on particular issues that would have seemed unthinkable just 15 years ago? That is a rapid cultural change. Some are insecure, and I think this is a big factor, because they simply have a loss of trust and unity. Social scientists say there's three things that you need in order to have a cohesive culture, three things. Number one, you have to have shared stories. Because we can't know each other. There's a, a famous number, again, this is not a quiz, so don't, you don't need to worry about this, I'm not giving you a test later. But there's a famous number in sociology called Dunbar's number. And Dunbar's number argues that there is a number of people that this is the highest number at which everyone in the group can have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with everyone else. You know what that number is? 150. Some companies have actually divided up, based on Dunbar's number, the number of employees in each building to 150. One company actually only put 150 parking spaces around each building. And here's what they discovered. When people only worked with the same 150 people, they no longer needed an HR director. Because everyone actually had a one-on relationship with everyone else and they could solve their own problems. But what happens when you have more than 150? The only way that we can learn to trust each other without a personal relationship is we have to know that we're living out the same story together. Shared stories make a culture. Secondly, it's social capital. Social capital is simply what you get when you trust the people around you to actually be for your good. And if you can trust that, your culture has social capital. And then finally, the last thing that you need for cultural unity is you need trust in institutions. Trust in institutions. So now, how do you think we're doing in America? Do we trust our political entities? Do we trust our economic entities like big businesses? Do we trust our cultural entities? How about Hollywood? Do we trust our churches? Culturally, do we trust them? That's a loss of trust in institutions. How about social capital? Do you think that we think the most people around us are actually for our good as a culture? Finally, shared stories. Do we still share the same stories that unify us? You know the stories that matter most to me. I know the stories that matter most to you. We share the same values out of these stories. I would argue, in fact, I used to make this as a joke, more people today know the relationship between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker than they do between Jacob and Esau. It used to be as a culture, everyone knew the Bible. Knew it so well that presidents could quote scripture without telling you it was scripture and everyone instantly got the reference. Tony Blair at Princess Di's funeral stood up and he read, Prime Minister of England at the time, he read 1 Corinthians 13. 
without explanation. He just got up at her funeral. It was his contribution. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. He sat down, and people all over England wrote into the government asking where they had come from, some thinking he had written that himself, and could they get a copy? A loss of shared stories. So cultural insecurity. Second big bucket, information flow. We now live in a time where we don't even get news the same way. Or we get the same news about the same event. If we look at social media, we thought social media would unite all of us in this large cultural conversation, but algorithms have been created because what drives traffic most is outrage. So algorithms were created to highlight those stories that would cause the greatest outrage in the people looking, and everyone's outraged by different things, and now we're getting a different impression of our day. How about the news media? 24-hour news realized you're going to be able to get viewership if you tailor it to a particular audience. And they talk about different events in different ways. And finally, we get to something called cancel culture, where we will actually, if someone becomes a cultural heretic in some way, we try to completely erase them from the culture so that no one can hear what this person has to say or do. Sometimes for good reason. But the truth is, we live in a time where people can look at the exact same event and get two wildly different accounts about it, and they don't even know that other people heard something completely different. My great example of this, and it's a hard one, so go with me on this. A few years ago, the General Superintendent of the Assemblies of God at the time, not our current one, had an invitation to the White House. It was when Donald, Donald Trump was president. And while he was there, he got his picture taken with... Ivanka, Trump, and Jared Kushner. So here's the General Superintendent of the Assemblies of God standing next to the children of the president who were acting his, his advisors. He posted it on social media as if to say, I was just in the White House. And the responses on social media to that picture. In fact, my favorite two, because they were back to back, were this. Someone wrote in, and this is all they wrote, glory be to God. And the person underneath them wrote exactly this, Satan has won. Same photo. Glory be to God, Satan has won. Those are two very different interpretations of what just happened, right? And how many know that gets played out in some of our churches? Same thing's happening, and this is how people are responding. So information flow. Another thing that has been a bucket for, that I want to highlight is simply ideological politics, ideology politics. Uh, politicians who run for office now have to appeal to the base of their party, which in some ways are the wing of their party, because to get elected in a polarized society, you have to prove that you're a purist in the polarization camp. And because a lot of politicians are now in meetings that are video conference. This is actually what some social scientists said. One of the things that would help Congress if we took cameras out of the room. Because everything they say to a person of the other party is being recorded, and if in any way they compromise, someone will use that against them in the next election because they're not a purist. Here's what studies have shown. They've actually looked at how Congress has worked together, and here's what they've uncovered. We were most divided as a country in 1860. 
What happened in 1860? Civil War. Okay, you all passed history. Civil War. You look at our divide, and here's what happens. This is where we're most divided. The graph goes down like this from 1860 and 70 until we reach our lowest level of divide, which means it was the greatest level of compromise between parties, and it was the year 1940. What happened in 1940? World War II. Then you watch the graph go back up. But here's what happens. When we get to the 21st century, for the first time in U.S. history, it goes past the record set by the Civil War. We are literally more divided politically now than we were at the time of the U.S. Civil War. Based on congressmen working together, we're more divided. What happens is that when this occurs, we now start to treat politics as if it's a zero-sum game in which we cannot win unless the other side loses. And if the other side wins, it somehow represents a loss for our side. We get to the point where you might have side A wanting a $1 reduction in taxes, and you have side B wanting a $2 reduction in taxes. And if side A wins, side B gets half of what it wanted. But side B would rather there be no reduction in taxes if it can't get the $2. Polarization, a zero-sum game. Then we come to identity formation. Here's my fourth bucket. Identity politics means the development of political agendas based on a particular identity, ethnic, religious, economic, but increasingly, it's the politics itself that's become the identity by which people know themselves. And the danger with identity politics or ideological politics or identity formation is that now we give people a set of packaged ethics where if you believe this and you're a part of this party, packaged with that are these 17 other things that we also need you to sign off on. And how many know a lot of times our packaged ethics in this country aren't based on a common political philosophy or even a foundational theology. They're just based on the historical accident of being attached to one party that 20 years ago might have been with the other party. I've seen Christians go on the attack to other believers because they talk about one position and a Christian assumes they mean 16 other positions. I've heard people actually make this comparison on social media where you tell me how you feel about immigration and I'll tell you how you feel about abortion. You tell me how you feel about policing and I'll tell you how you feel about LGBTQ. Even when they don't actually have a relationship except that they're attached to a particular side. It's packaged ethics and we're now allowing our identity to be formed by our relationship to a group, and let's be honest, a group that is outside the church, because every political party is. And that becomes the source of our identity, which leads me to the last bucket. And the last bucket is this, idolatry. Now, I've not said anything up to this point that's overly profound or unexpected. Everyone else has pointed out these things. But what I'm going to say now is what I'm not hearing a lot of people talk about, and it's simply this. Polarization 
was designed to create idolaters. Polarization was designed to create idolaters. Idolatry is what? It's putting something else in place of God. And typically that happens not because we're putting something bad in place of God. Typically that's how we talk about idolatry is we look at people and we're like, well, you know, idolaters, they sacrificed children to Moloch and they did this and they did that. It's horrible things. But no, what typically happens is what we put in place of God isn't a bad thing, it's a good thing. How many know that family can become an idol? How many know that patriotism can become an idol? How many know that freedom can become an idol? Not because it's bad, but because it's good. And the closer something can be to a gift of God, the more tempting it is to turn that thing into a replacement for God. And here's the thing. People who aren't following God are following after something else. We live in a country filled with idolaters. Because if you're not living your life for God, you're living your life for something else. And whatever that thing is, is the idol. So in a world that is polarized, how many people are living their life for politics? And for political positions? And for political sides? And for political tribes? Which is by definition idolatry when it takes the place of God. How many are still with me? So here's the thing. By the way, I have this quote here. This quote is from Mark, uh, John Calvin. I love it. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Or one way a person put it I thought was even better, but this is the exact quote. Human minds are factories for making idols. We are constantly in temptation of taking something good and right and turning it into something in place of God. And another quote, and I don't know who said this. I've heard this a lot of places. I can't find the original person who said it, but it was simply this. An absence of religion, politics becomes religion. In a secularized world, it is not a surprise that politics takes the place of religion because religion is where we learn about good and evil. Religion is where we learn about the nature of our own hearts. Religion is where we learn, and really, I just want to say Christianity is where we learn about what it means to be human. But if I don't have a religion to teach me that, what do I have to turn to? And there are people for whom politics, having replaced religion, is the only place they have to understand who's good and who's bad and what it means to be human and what hope I have for the future. And it is why every election now becomes a battle for America's soul. Because it's the only eschatology people have. They don't have a hope from there, so their hope has to be in the poll box right here. And that's why they invest it with that kind of importance. It has taken the place of God for them. And here's the problem with this. And of course, you're like, well, I think I can tell the problem for this. Let me give you another one. Whatever we put in place of God will never be enough to satisfy us. And when people put politics in place of God they will never be satisfied. No politician will ever be the Messiah they were hoping for. No victory over political issue will ever fix the country the way that we hope it will. And what happens for people who are trying to make politics that place that fixes them, when they're not satisfied in this election, they double down for the next one and the next one 
and the next one, and they just get further and further deformed from who they were called to be in Christ. So what's the danger for us as Christians? The danger for us is this. Those in our church who are polarized may be so completely identifying with a tribe that they're in danger of becoming unequally yoked with idolaters. Let me say that again. Those in our church who are so polarized that they identify so completely with a particular tribe are in danger of becoming unequally yoked with idolaters. And can I give you some symptoms of that? Do you have anyone in your church who is more motivated by political outrage throughout the week than they are about the needs of other people? That's what drives them. Do you have anyone in your church who, when they respond to people with whom they disagree, they don't know how to be godly towards non-believers, and they don't know how to be unifying towards believers? Because you and I sharing Jesus is no longer enough for me. I need to know how you feel about this. Otherwise, I might not be able to worship with you. And when that happens, Jesus genuinely isn't enough. So, this is all polarization. Now let's go to COVID. Because imagine we're in a culture that's experiencing this. And then COVID happens. And what typically occurs is something like this. We go through a crisis. A crisis leads to conflict. Why does it lead to conflict? Because we can't agree on how to solve the crisis. How many of you have ever been there? How many of you are married? You've been there. You know, you can't agree on how to solve the crisis. It leads to conflict. Conflict at a large scale leads to confusion because now a lot of us are hearing different options and we genuinely don't know who's right. How many of you got confused during COVID? You just didn't know who was right. And what that does is that pushes a need for clarity. And what happens is I will start creating these weird litmus tests to figure out how you feel about little issues because that tells me where you belong and it tells me where I belong. So, under COVID, the crisis is COVID-19. The conflict happens with the government response. The confusion we see in the church. I mean, no churches were confused on how to handle this. I mean, churches had different responses. God bless every church for responding because no one had the right answer that was completely right because we've never been through this before. But how many know that it created a need for clarity among a lot of Christians? And we created these weird litmus tests of, tell me how you feel about masks. Tell me how you feel about vaccines. Tell me how you feel about. And what we're doing is we're trying to find quick clarity on who we belong to and who we don't belong to. But the question we didn't ask is, tell me how you feel about Jesus. Because one had replaced the other. Now, I want to talk briefly about Paul, but I just want to highlight this. I want to be careful and not just drop Paul into the 21st century and act as if I know about how he would respond to everything. Here's the thing. I don't know if Paul would have had an iPhone. Like, I don't. I said this to my wife, do you think Paul would have had an iPhone? She's like, no, I think it's Samsung. I kicked her out of the car. No, I don't know how Paul would have responded to things. But I do know that Paul faced a very similar situation that wasn't COVID, but it was a crisis that led to a conflict 
that led to confusion, that led to the church's desire for easy clarity, and I know how Paul navigated that. That's what I want to lift up as a model. What was the crisis? The crisis was Jewish identity under Roman oppression. For almost a hundred years, Jews had been oppressed by Rome, and there was a struggle to maintain my identity as an oppressed people, but we all had different ways of doing it. I might be a Pharisee. I might be a Sadducee. I might be a Zealot. I might be a part of the hoi polloi that's just trying to survive because I live on substance farming. (laughs) But we're all trying to figure out how to maintain our identity under this oppression. Then suddenly, Paul enters the scene... Christianity up to this point is fully Jewish, so it's just another answer to the question, how do we be Jewish? And suddenly all these Gentiles start becoming Christians. And how do you know even Jewish Christians were up in arms? Because we've been fighting to maintain Jewish identity this whole time, and now you have Gentiles joining who are doing nothing that looks Jewish. Was there conflict over this? Yes. Was there confusion? Read Acts chapter 15. Read almost every section of one of the letters of Paul. It's an issue that is always there. And was there a desire for clarity? For easy clarity? How do you feel about circumcision? How do you feel about eating bacon? How do you feel about certain holidays? How do you feel about food sacrificed to idols? Tell me how you feel about these Jewish practices. Tell me how you feel about these pagan practices. And I'll tell you everything I need to know about you. That was the world where Paul was a pastor. And in almost every letter, he has to navigate that polarization. Would you like to see how he did it? Very quickly, because I have really gone too far here. I'm going to hit four areas. Christ and identity. Character and unity. Community and leadership. And then citizenship and rights. Here's what he writes about each, but I want you to understand the context. I'm not saying it's exactly like COVID. Please understand me. What I'm saying, it's a crisis with confusion and conflict where people are trying to navigate through easy litmus test of clarity. What did Paul do in light of this? The first thing Paul did, and I'll just put this whole thing up here, is Paul highlighted that our identity always has to be in Christ and nothing else. In fact, you read the letter to the Philippians, and it's just beautiful. It's one of my favorite letters of Paul. Every letter is my favorite letter of Paul. But it's my favorite letter of Paul. Paul says in this, he gives us great image. He said, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he's in the very nature of God, did not consider his equality with God as something to be exploited. But he took on the role of a servant, being found in human form. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name. Paul highlights three things here in the life of Christ. Number one, he did not take advantage of his rights. Number two, he was obedient to the point of death. Number three, the Apostle Paul saw Jesus be raised up. Here's what's interesting. That plays out through the rest of the letter of the Philippians. When Paul talks about two young men who've worked with him, he highlights the pattern of Christ he just gave us. He talks about a Timothy, a young man who looks after the interest of Jesus and not his own interest. He doesn't exploit his rights. He talks about a Papriodidas, a man who he says almost died for the work of Christ. He was obedient to the point of death. And then Paul in chapter 3 says he wants the same life. Everything that is to my credit... I now count as loss in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, and I want to be found in Him, sharing in His sufferings 
so that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. What is Paul hoping for? I'm going to give up what I have the right to. I'm going to be obedient to the point of death. And in the end, God will raise me up. That is the pattern of every Christian life. Did we follow that under COVID? Paul later talks about, in Romans, baptism. And he gives us something very similar. He says that when you go under the water, you are actually baptized in the death of Christ. When you come out of the water, you are raised in the life of Christ. And I always, when I do baptism classes, I always tell my people, aren't you glad we use water and I don't actually bury you and quickly dig you back up, right? You know, water is the symbol. (laughs) But here's the way I would use baptism as a pastor. I would use it for discipleship. Because I would say to people, when you go under the water, the options you had before you became a Christian, some of those options are now gone. Just like when I got married, my wife would no longer, my wife's in the very back there, hi baby, my wife would no longer let me date other people. Because I got married. My options had changed. But now that I'm married, I'm free to live the rest of my life going this direction. When I get baptized, my options change. There's some things I can't do anymore. I would say this to people as a pastor. I've already baptized you. You're not allowed to do that anymore. That's gone. That option doesn't exist for you anymore. Now you have the freedom to live your life fully in this direction. Easter, I had the opportunity because my pastor gave me the chance to baptize my son. Seven years old, I baptized him. We go back up. Hi, baby. We go back up. We're changing. And my son gets impatient because daddy's taking too long. And I said to him, son, you can't be impatient. He goes, why? I say, you got baptized. You have to be patient now. He said, oh, okay. And he waited for me. We identify with Christ. But then Paul says this later in this letter. He says, because we have done this, we are now called to live a sacrificed life. Christ is our sacrifice. One thing that's interesting about Christianity is Christians and Jews were the only religious group that didn't have idols. You go to a Christian place of worship, a Jewish place of worship, there's no God. It was weird. It was this empty space, no idol. But everyone except Christians did sacrifices. Christians had no sacrifice. We were so weird, right? No dead animals in our worship place. And Paul says, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? Because Christ is the sacrifice. Now we live out a sacrificial life as those who have identified with Christ. And then he says this, and be transformed... By the renewing of your minds, not following after the pattern or mold of this world. And I like to highlight this to my students. The pattern of this world includes categories our culture have created that do not come from Scripture. There are categories we use from our culture by which to understand people that are found nowhere in the Bible. And we bring them into the church as if they're determinative. And here's the thing. Categories created by people who don't follow God will not be helpful in discerning the will of God. Categories created by people who don't follow God will not be helpful to us in discerning the will of God. If we, I'm not saying categories aren't useful, but don't let them be the thing that controls how we see the world when they're not coming from God. Be transformed 
by the renewal of your mind so that you can discern God's pleasing and perfect will. Then Paul talks about how do we handle the identity markers. And he gives us this as a strategy. Romans, he says, there are people in your church who think that they're not Christian unless they don't eat pork. They don't think they're Christian unless they're circumcised. They don't think they're Christian unless these holidays. And you look at them and you say, you guys are wrong. And they look at you and say, you guys are wrong. And here's what I'm saying, you're both wrong. You're not allowed to judge those who don't have your identity markers. And you're not allowed to show contempt on those who do have those identity markers. But rather as Christians, we are called to accept one another just as Christ Jesus accepted us. And in 1 Corinthians, he flips it. Because now the issue isn't Jewish practices, it's pagan practices. What about the Gentiles who are eating food sacrificed to idols that is offending all these other people? How do we handle that? And Paul's point is this, idols are nothing. Idols aren't anything. They're not actually doing any damage if you eat a food sacrifice to an idol. But if you offend a brother or sister for doing that, it is doing damage. And just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing for another person. You cannot exercise your rights as a Christian if the exercise of those rights does damage to another believer. Because we don't live for our rights. We live for the mutual edification of our church. That's what determines our behavior. It's the good for those whom Christ died. Now, we are running out of time, so I will show you how much more I have. And I can make this available to you. But when I talk about character and unity, I'm just going to say this very quickly. The character traits we see throughout Pauline letters, almost all of them are designed for community. Look at how much of the fruit of the Spirit is a community trait. And in fact, if you read Galatians 5.22, what are the verses that follow? It's about community. Paul tells us to forbear with each other constantly. What does that mean? My wife in the very back is taking care of a baby. We do respite care, so it's not our forever baby, but it's a baby we're taking care of right now. She holds her everywhere. She puts her in a baby wrap. That's forbearance. It means that we carry others with us. I mean, sometimes there are Christians around us who need to be carried. Once as a pastor, I had a woman, and I, and I had to correct her, I rarely ever do this, but I had to stop her in the middle of a public prayer. She was Jewish. The night before, there had been a bombing in Israel. People had died. She asked if she could pray, and I rather stupidly and unwisely said yes, not realizing where she's coming from. She stood up in front of the church, and she prayed publicly for genocide, that God would kill right now every Palestinian man, woman, and child. At which point I had to say as the pastor, Marilyn, stop. We're not going to say amen to that prayer as a community. And I had to stop right then and there and talk about what it means when Jesus tells us to love our enemies. But at the same time, I had to explain to the church how Marilyn was feeling. And you need to understand where she's coming from and how hurt she is. And what is the role of our church right now? It's not to agree in a prayer for genocide, but it is to wrap our arms around Marilyn and carry her. That's forbearance. Paul talks about community and leadership. 
Three things he says about leadership is this. We have three goals as leaders. It is the maturity of the church, it is the ministry of the church, and it is the unity of the church. We are called to equip people for works of service. We are called to see that people grow into the wholeness and fullness which is Christ, and we are called to maintain the unity of the faith. And then Paul commands Timothy, in your preaching, correct, rebuke, and encourage because if you don't give them the truth, they will follow after myths that tickle their ears. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, in every crisis in our country, there are myths that enter our community that tickle ears. And that's what people want to talk about rather than the gospel. And Paul right here gives us a corrective to that. I charge you before God, preach the word. And then we talk about citizenship and rights. And I just want to highlight a couple of things here. Paul has no problem insisting on his rights as a Roman citizen in the book of Acts. When the government treats him unfairly, he has no problem calling that out. But he also reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven, and that's where our hope comes from. When he writes that, he's actually writing to a group of Philippians. Philippi was a Roman colony that was actually a reward for Roman soldiers. There was a lot of patriotism in that church. And Paul reminds them, your citizenship is in heaven. That's where your hope comes from. He also reminds us that the government is God's servant for order and for justice. And that the government is here to do what? It's to work for the common good and it's to administrate fairly. And when there we are not, we agree with the government. That's not the requirement. The requirement is, is the government doing what it thinks is best? And is it doing it fairly? That's the principle. But Paul also reminds us that though the government deserves obedience and taxes and all these other things, the one thing it doesn't get is worship. We never give the government that place because, again, we're not idolaters. When the government crosses the line into Christian worship, that's when Christians are bound to say no. And let me say this, and I'm just going to say this very quickly. Our no means more when the government knows we've been willing to say yes before. If I'm willing to work with you government as much as I can for the common good and in fairness to everyone, the government's not acting fairly. Paul had no problem calling that out. But if I'm willing to work with you and to say yes to you, that's what gives our no power. It's not that we say no all the time. It's that we say yes until we absolutely can't. And that's when our no gets heard. And then, last thing, you ready? This is the application. I really did not time this well. Here's the things I want to highlight in light of what Paul has done that I think we need to focus on in pastors. Number one, We've got to teach for identity. The role of the pastor is identity formation in the church. Or if you want to use biblical language, it's make disciples. We've got to preach and teach for identity. If our people don't have biblical grounding, if they don't understand who they are in Christ, there's no way they will be able to act like Christ. You cannot have character formation without some level of biblical and theological literacy. If you don't know Christ... You can't act like Christ. We have to preach and teach for identity. We also have to model for transformation. 
We've got to make sure that the way that we deal with issues in areas like politics is godly, godly interactions before the church. The way that we talk about our leaders has got to reflect the way God calls us to be. We've got to make sure that we emphasize spiritual warfare over culture wars. And finally, we have to make sure our dialogue about politics, I love this from James, so this is not Paul, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. How would that change us on social media? That those were the three principles we always followed. That means we have to disciple for community. And here's what I want to highlight. When we disciple people, I'm not discipling you for your lone individual, lone wolf life with God. I'm discipling you so you can be part of a community of people. If I disciple you in faith, that means I'm also discipling you for truth-telling. That means I'm discipling you for critical thinking. That also means I'm teaching you how to listen. If I disciple you for hope, I'm also discipling you for patience. Because when I know from where my hope comes from, I learn how to wait. I don't get disappointed and crushed at every time something goes wrong because my hope wasn't here to begin with. I can be patient, and that means I can be slow to anger. And if we disciple people for love, we're also discipling them for service. What would a church look like if it was known for its patience, it was known for its service, it was known for its truth-telling? That's a disciplined community. And then finally, we've got to lead for witness. We've got to lead our community for witness. Will you give me just two more minutes? Thank you. Here's the thing I want to highlight. This is my last big point, and it's this. We cannot, we cannot treat the church like it's a special interest group because scripture already tells us the church is made up of every tribe, every nation, every people, every tongue. When we treat the church as a special interest group, we deny the fact that the church was made for every tribe. We're not one group among many. We're the group for everybody. That doesn't mean they don't have to convert. But we don't exclude by treating ourselves as a special interest group. We have got to learn that God has a common grace that he gives to everyone. What does it say in Matthew? He calls his reign to fall on the just and the unjust alike. What that means, and the fact that it also ends with this, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, that verse used to freak me out. Until I realize what it's saying is, in the same way that God is good to all, we are expected to be good to all. Common grace. Because of common grace, as a church, we can fight for common good. What does it say in Jeremiah? Pray for the peace of the city that you are in. Because when they succeed, you succeed. The church can live for the common good, but to do that, we have to be willing to find the common ground. There are people out there that we disagree with, but it doesn't mean we disagree with them on everything. And we can work together for the common good. How is this not compromise? For this reason. We have common grace, common good, common ground, but on top of all of that, we put an uncommon godliness. Because when people work with us, they should see the difference that it makes. The difference of the church should not just be in our beliefs, the difference of the church should be in our behavior. And when people believe in what we do, they're going to be willing to hear what we believe. We lead for witness. Or, as Peter puts it, and this is our last thing, 
live such good lives among the pagans that when they accuse you of doing wrong, here's polarization, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Thank you guys.